Welcome to Data Talks, where we figure out how people from a variety of disciplines use data to make professional and personal decisions. Samit Kumar, welcome to Data Talks. Good to be here. Thanks. So we are in San Francisco, or specifically Pacifica. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Somewhere out there looming large is the Pacific in all its glory. <laughs> it is, that's right. Really appreciate you coming on the show here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. I am a clinical psychologist. I work at a very large public hospital system right now. I've been working with cancer patients as a psychologist for 17 years, specializing really in end-of-life care and grief, and also helping people really transition through some very difficult times into more fuller lives, hopefully more well-balanced lives too. So most people who get cancer survive cancer. I tend to see a lot of people who won't or don't, but I also see a fair amount of people who do and really want to be able to use something bad as a turning point. So you work with both with people who have cancer that's terminal where they right. they die while you're working with them or yeah uh, sometimes yeah. hours sometimes years uh-huh. really and also people who have cancer diagnosis who uh, acute or, or more short-term Correct. yeah is yeah. that okay so, you know the level of distress doesn't always synchronize with the level of the disease so sometimes people who are having a lot of emotional issues or they're having a lot of mental anguish they don't have a terminal illness And a lot of people who have a terminal illness don't really need to talk to anybody about it. They're kind of, they have whatever they have going on in their lives that they're not really in need of additional support. But, you know, a lot of them are. A lot of families are, certainly. The reason the oncologists refer patients to me is because of the level of distress. And oftentimes it's just the situation is so profoundly horrible that it just needs some witnessing. Basically, there's nothing anybody can really do to change it. Right. So the person is having a really hard time. Their family is. Right. And it's impacting them uh, tremendously. And so the oncologist will call you in. Right. Okay. And so when you get called in, like what, I guess it must be like very, very much case by case, but in general, like, you know, what do you do? And what kind of information you use to make your sort of to guide you. Right. There's a few things going on at the same time. One is that I'm trying to use a template that'll really satisfy all the legal and ethical requirements for documentation. And those are some very basic things. Is this a person a threat to themselves or a threat to other people? Right. Um, do they have an accurate grasp of reality? Is their cognitive functioning intact? And also communicating to other members of the medical team that those things have been addressed. So that's one thing. That's like kind of the brainless stuff in, in that there's not much art in that. Those are very specific questions. Right. The other thing is really to try to get a sense from talking to this person about what their lives were looking like before this happened, because right. cancer, like any trauma, tends to be an amplifier. And so whatever issues may have been lurking in the background are going to be significantly amplified. Say, for instance, they had a really lousy marriage. Uh-huh. Um, their children don't like them or whatever. After a cancer diagnosis, those things, they don't automatically get better. Sometimes they do. Uh-huh. But really what happens is that people kind of have this flashbulb going off and it's like, oh my God, my life looks like this. That's not what I really want. So for instance, if they're isolated, they're going to start to really feel that sense of isolation. If their friendships or relationships aren't very deep and you know, not everybody that any of us, all of us, we have different kinds of relationships. There are some that are really deep and meaningful and others that are just kind of fun. And ideally, there's a little bit of both in each relationship friendship and with family and and things like that. And some people find that what they thought of as a deep relationship isn't really so. 
you know, fair weather friends sort of disappear. Family sometimes doesn't be there. They're not there. So really, are we talking about amplified pre-existing conditions? In which case, you know, it might be a much longer term therapeutic relationship if the person is healthy, relatively healthy, and they're going to meet the challenges of the diagnosis and the treatment is going to, is expected to be effective and put them into a very long remission, if not a cure. The other thing is, is that if they're facing a very bad disease, um, and, you know, it could go either way. What does this person need to find peace in this life, basically? And do they feel they deserve peace in this life? And how do they get that? So you're saying if it's very serious and it looks like it's terminal and that's sort of eminent, then looking at that as, as an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So peace in this life, what does that mean? So basically one thing that I tell a lot of my patients is that through all my years of working with people going through cancer, I've learned a few characteristics of the human mind. And this is independent of culture, gender, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic status, sexual preference, religious beliefs, whatever. This some very basic human qualities is that um, the first thing is that the mind doesn't care whether you're happy or not. That's completely ridiculous to the mind. That's not what it's for. The mind is a survival tool. And in order to be a survival tool, it really cannot tolerate uncertainty. It needs to know what's happening next. What does the world look like in four dimensions? What does uh, the fourth dimension being time? What does the world look like in four dimensions? And where do I fit into that? So that's basically what the mind is for. Most of us want to be happy. That's not what the mind is for. So we have to kind of train the mind to do that. Mm -hmm. The second part about uncertainty is really key because when people are faced with an illness, they're faced with a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis, and it's terrifying and scary. Usually what happens is that they get the diagnosis. They don't really know what's going to happen next. It mm -hmm. takes some time to formulate. This is the size of the disease. This is where it's at. This is what we can do about it. That can take a while. That can take weeks. Sometimes it can take months. And really it takes years to figure out whether you're okay or not. That uncertainty is absolute torture for most people. So what I'm trying to do is encourage people to focus on what they can be certain about, which is, you know, today, it's not like you're preventing yourself from thinking about the uncertainty, but you're trying to draw your attention more towards the known world. This is what's happening today. This is what we know about today. This is what we can expect for today. And this is my life for today. That's all any of us really know. But we kind of have this illusion in the back of our minds about the future, about who we're going to be in the future, who we're going to be with, what we're going to do, all this stuff. And that kind of helps us feel safe. It's kind of like on autopilot mode. It helps us feel safe. So when that's taken away, all of a sudden, you're just kind of like decontextualized. And most people experience it. It's, it's taken away of, because of the diagnosis? Right. Okay. And most people experience that as terrifying. So what I try to do is I try to extend out the known world, which is today and this moment, and try to say, you know, I don't try to say it, but um, I try to encourage people to think of that as that's good enough. Like, that's all you know. That's going to have to be good enough because I don't know. We don't know. We have wishes. We have desires, but we don't really know. Right. So just try to find a sense of fullness in what you do know that today, hey, you made it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So the other types of information that you use, right? So like sort of diagnostically in order to sort of approach and, and work with an individual and I guess their their family. Can you talk about that a little bit more? And I don't know if you use like formal assessment tools or it's more sort of clinical interview, that kind of stuff. Sure. And, you know, we a lot of probably mostly like non-psychologists listening to this. So yes. Yeah. So let's yeah. So I, I basically use what, what you alluded to earlier as a clinical interview, which is nothing like a job interview or anything like that. So if I'm meeting somebody who's hospitalized I'll introduce myself. I'll say, you know, um, verify their name, you know, 
John, are you John Doe? Okay, I'm I'm Dr. Kumar. I'm a clinical psychologist from the Cancer Center. Doctor, your doctor asked me to stop by and check in on you, see how you're holding up emotionally. This is a really, you know, whatever it is, um, depending on the person. And then I'll kind of go into, you know, how are you holding up emotionally? Because that's not something that a lot of people get asked in the hospital. So this is what it is. How are you holding up emotionally with all this stuff? And that's really kind of the the fork in the road. Um, is this person really going to benefit from talking or mm -hmm. do they have their own thing going on? Or are they really like, yes, I did ask the doctor to come by. I'm having a really hard time uh -huh. and I'm glad you're here. Like, I need to talk to you. If I'm meeting the person in my office, my first question to them is, of course, I know something about them before they sit down in front of my office, uh, in front of me in my office. So I'll say something like, you know, I've I've uh, talked to your doctor and I've read through your medical chart, but I always prefer to hear it from real people. How can I help you today? And that to me identifies, it helps me identify what's the therapeutic goal here. Mm -hmm. So that to me is really the, the most important question I'm going to ask somebody ever is how can I help you? How they answer that question tends to dominate the relationship for that I have with them for a long time. And beyond that, I use a, a tool called Siggy Caps, which is a, it's short, I think, Things called an acronym for different symptoms of depression. Then I assess for suicidality, psychiatric history, uh, any family concerns, family psychiatric history. What do they do for a living? Are they married? Do they have children? What are their coping skills? Do they drink or smoke? Mm -hmm. Are they religious or spiritual? What kinds of psychiatric medications are they taking, if any? And that's really kind of the bare bones minimum. And depending on how they answer those questions, I might follow one of those things down a much uh, deeper rabbit hole. So it doesn't give you a score. It's more of just like a structured. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what's going on is that I have a template, a diagnostic template in my head uh -huh. of diagnostic criteria. And as they're answering questions, I'm kind of plugging it in mentally. Right myself saying, okay, so they've met five or more diagnostic criteria for depression. I'm looking at a, a major depressive right, disorder right, or, right. you know, this has been going on less than six months. It doesn't seem that severe. This is more of an adjustment type issue. Right. They're having panic attacks and they, when they have panic attacks, they need to flee. They feel like they need to get out of wherever they're at. Oh, they're having panic disorder with agoraphobia. So, you know, if there's any persistent traumas, for instance, are they having trouble sleeping at night? Okay. Well, what are you thinking about at night? Oh, you're thinking about a car accident that happened many years ago. Okay, tell me about that. And, you know, is this PTSD? Um, so depending on how they answer that bare bones template, I can explore in greater detail and kind of go which way that the, you know, follow the narrative. Gotcha. But around all of this, so whatever comes up, you still have the cancer diagnosis. Right. Right. And right. the type of cancer they have, the severity and everything. Right. right. And so how do you sort of bring the two together, right? Like they're where they come from, their experiences, where they are beforehand, right? and then this diagnosis and what they do after. Like, what, how, well, it, how it does really, that... It really depends a lot on why they were sent to see me. Uh, did they request it? Did their doctor request it? It depends also on what what they're telling me, too. Mm -hmm. And that's really the most important thing, is what, what are they expecting out of this relationship? And so, for, for instance, some of them will say, the cancer is the least of my worries. My marriage has sucked for the past 10 years, and I don't know how to get out of it. Or they'll say, you know, this illness is just the latest thing to happen to me. I really need to tell you about something that happened to me when I was eight years old. And really, really horrible things happen. So they could have like a cancer never. diagnosis, and, they, and what they'll bring up is something that happened, some trauma or something horrible. Right. That they just have never shared, and this is like an opportunity for them. I mean, that's to, not the most common thing, but it is. Right. It's but it happens. It's very regular. It's very regular for sure. Hmm. 
So people kind of are, are saying, if I'm facing something that is going to make me lose my life, I don't want to take this poison that I've been carrying around. I don't want to carry it around anymore. And if I'm going to live, I don't want to live with this poison, whatever event or whatever stress or whatever toxic mm. relationship or toxic experience they've had. I don't want to carry this poison around with me anymore because this is it. Or just the illness has opened my eyes and I don't need to carry this. Like, what am I doing? I'm sick. What am I sick of? You know, my body is sick with an illness, but there's an illness in my soul I've been carrying around and I don't want that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out how to get rid of that. And I'm more than happy to help with that. Right. So that becomes a focus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. There's another piece of it also is that a lot of times I'm meeting people in the hospital and they're they're hospitalized and they're very, very ill. And oftentimes we kind of suspect that their experience in the hospital is going to be the end of their life. And they're not completely aware of that yet. And there are things that we're trying to do as, as a medical team to prevent that from happening, but it's kind of like a- Prevent what from happening? Death from happening. Oh, from death, okay. But at the same time, they're they're going to die. Like, are they already in hospice or it's just so quick that they're it's, not in hospice? There's these instances where it happens so rapidly that there's just almost like no time to even think about, you know, hey, maybe we can try. Oh, 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 that that already failed. Oh, nope. Nope. It's moving along. OK. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one organ after the other is shutting down or something like that is happening. And, right. And in those instances, a very brief amount of time to work with the family. And really what I'm trying to do is quickly and rapidly assess what are your beliefs about the afterlife? What is your belief about what this whole game of life is about? And do you want your loved one to die naturally or with a lot of technology not necessarily helping? And in the back okay. of my mind... So you help with, you help with that decision? Often, yes. Uh -huh. And in the back of my mind, I am carrying around a piece of data, several pieces of data that have come out in the last 10 years especially that tie people who die in, the, in intensive care units with aggressive interventions. Their families tend to have much poorer outcomes psychologically and physically. Afterwards? Afterwards. Huh. Afterwards. It's so much more related. Uh, if you have... Why is that? Why, why, why would that be? You know, until recently... In the United States, at least in the Americas in the developed world, until recently, death was a very natural thing. It, it was something we all saw. Most homes were multi-generational. Most families lived where they were born and they didn't move around. And really, since the dawn of antibiotics and post-World War II, death is seen as something to be feared and something to fight aggressively against, as it should be. But to the extent that it's so strange to us, and yet it's so universal also. We don't feel like it's a natural flow. We feel like it's a defeat. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, often, it feels that way. But there's something about us that's in, in our society where we have the resources is that we really push aggressively to not let people die at all costs. And what I mean by that is that it's one thing to say, you know, we're going to do everything possible to preserve your life. And it's another thing to say, you know, we're going to keep you alive and we're not going to let you die. Mm -hmm. Most people don't understand what that means unless they see it. And when they see it, it's traumatic. And if your family members are going through that, it can really mess things up for a while. And so I'm always carrying that piece of information around with me is that, you know, you might think you're making the right decision right now, but you're the one who's going to have to live with that as a family member. And that might not be something you really want to be carrying around.
Mm -hmm. How do the beliefs about your own life and the afterlife and all that sort of thing, how does that impact how you, you know, work with people without necessarily like imposing those beliefs? Because everyone has their own kind of way of you know, religious views or, or not, whatever. Well, personally, I practice a form of Buddhism called Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. And a lot of people may be familiar with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. There's a very extensive tradition in Tibetan Buddhism on what happens in that intermediate state, the, the bardo. But, you know, there's a couple of experiences I've had which really kind of keep me in perspective. And these are bits of data I carry around also. One is a right. many years ago, I was in a very active information-seeking stage of my relationship with Vajrayana practice. With so, what With what practice? With the Vajrayana practice. Okay. It's a, so there's, in Buddhism, there's the Theravadan school, which is the oldest and probably the most authentic, and that's practiced largely in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. There's the Mahayana school, which came later in originating in India, spreading through China extensively in Japan and Central Asia and the Himalayas and uh, Persia even up to a point. And the Vajrayana school developed in India and uh, has really been preserved and I would say probably perfected in Tibet and Mongolia and the branch of Buddhism that I practice. And the Vajrayana, we believe that it kind of encompasses all the other schools of Buddhism as well, that it, it's the latest development. Some would say it makes it the least genuine and the least authentic of the Buddhist teachings. Others would say it's the most developed form that the Buddha himself taught these Vajrayana practices in secret, only to be discovered long after his passing. But that's very tangential to our conversation today. Yeah. So in the Vajrayana, there's an extensive tradition of exploring the after-death state, the intermediate state. So I was I was in a, attending a lot of lectures by different Tibetan lamas that were coming into town. And I attended one by a guy named Lama Norla, who I haven't heard from, and uh, I haven't attended any of his things in a long time, but he was absolutely pivotal in my development as a Buddhist. And um, he was teaching on the different dream yogas. And these are techniques of using one's conscious awareness in the dream state to navigate deep meditational visionary realms with the belief that, you know, this is sort of that disembodied consciousness is also what we experience in, in a more subtle form after we die. And a, a guy at the end of this lecture stood up and said, you know, he's been studying these dream yogas and he's reached this certain level where he's able to do this, that, or the other. And can the Lama dictate to him, can the Lama verify for him that means that he'll have tremendous success uh, after he dies in navigating the bardo? And the Lama kind of looked at him and asked him to repeat the question and asked for some clarification. And after great deliberation, he said, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe. I hope so. You would be very lucky. I, I really don't know. I I don't know. It's death. We don't know. And it was, you know, the audience was kind of like, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> like, <laughs> you're the llama. You're right. supposed to know. Right. Yeah. You don't know either. What the hell are we here for? <laughs> you know, you're yeah. going to take away the mystery. Why did we come to And that? when he said this, you know, he was kind of chuckling, like, you know, are, what's wrong with you? Like, you're asking me about whether you're going to have success after you die. How would I know that? So that that's something that happened about 15, 20 years ago. And it's really stuck with my mind is that, you know, we really don't know. So I have some assumptions and I've had some experiences, but I, I really don't know. Another conversation I had was with my own teacher many years ago when I asked him about this practice called POA, which is practiced in Tibetan Buddhism. It's called the transference of consciousness, 
where you're able to kind of encourage someone's consciousness to go in certain directions as they're dying and after they die to kind of encourage them to have a, a wholesome outcome in the dying process. So I asked them, you know, I've never been trained in FOA and I, I'm not really sh- so sure I want to be because as a psychologist, I feel like it might cloud my motivation. It would probably just kind of, you know, I would want to be doing that all the time and that not everybody wants that done. So he said, listen, you know, all you really need to do, what it all boils down to is just make sure that they're in a peaceful state of mind as they're dying. And if you can do that, then it's good enough. So why? Why peaceful state of mind? Why is that important? Well, there's a belief in Buddhism and Hinduism, and I think in probably many other religions as well, that the presence of mind that you bring as you're dying, it has a lot to do with how you experience death and the afterlife. And it's not necessarily like, you know, oh my God, there's a car crash. Oh my God, no, 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 no. It's not really that immediate, the trauma of dying, as much as it is the momentum that you bring to uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, going to sleep is considered to be one of the rehearsals. It's a dropping off into something, you know, we do this every night. We drop off into into what exactly? Mm -hmm. Consciously, we're, you know, it's blackness. It's inky black, murky. Yeah. Do we really know? Are we sure we're going to wake up? Like, Mm -hmm. yet we've been doing this since our first moments on Earth. We've all been dropping into this nothing. Right. You know, our minds just go offline and you, know, you go into sleep mode and you shut down. And uh-huh. What happens next? I, I don't know. I woke up and like all this time went by and I have these fuzzy memories of something. But So that's considered to be sort of a rehearsal that if you can uh, kind of work. And this is what the guy was talking about is that if you can work with falling asleep consciously with mindfulness and with awareness, then maybe that can translate into a meaningful afterlife as well which in the construct of reincarnation means that you come out, you know, with a favorable rebirth. Why is it important to have the, that like awareness when you're sort of dropping off to sleep or dropping off into death? Like why the awareness or well, what, I, what is that about? I, I think it's the antidote to that uncertainty I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I think the Buddhists, although there may be some training in how to live with uncertainty, there certainly isn't a, a longing for it. You know, so, I'm very mindful of the fact that a lot of these ideas and a lot of these practices may be absolutely worthless, but they feel better when you do them. They feel very good when you do them, when you're practicing treatment mm-hmm. or, or something like that. They feel, it feels incredible, really. And it's incredible in kind of a spooky way almost. Yeah, but do you have some like sense that there's some truth behind them? Aside from just the feeling, um, like that it represents like, do, sort of I something do, that I do. I do is very, what happens to yeah, us. Yeah, well... So here's the deal. In my books about grief, I've alluded to this, and I've, I've probably talked to thousands of people at this point who who are either grieving or working with people who are grieving. And one of the parts that I really get called on a lot in a favorable way is when I'm talking about supernatural experiences that people have. Right. There's such relief when I'm talking about this stuff. And I'm not too shy, at least when I'm lecturing or I'm working with patients or with other therapists and disclosing that, you know, I've had some pretty weird things happen too. Probably one of the most significant ones. um, I met a lady many, many, many years ago. Um, She was practicing in the spiritist school, which is something that started in France in the 19th century, a guy named Alan Kardec. And it's really big in Brazil. In South Florida, we have a very large Brazilian population. Uh Uh-huh. And she had a really bad disease, and she knew that she was going to die from this disease soon. Okay. And 
and her motivation for coming to therapy was just just to make sure she was doing everything right and she was really such a pleasure to know uh, her and she uh, had absolutely no fear of death she had no fear of death and she had no fear of dying right and I asked her how you know what was what was that it was somewhat unusual and she said she was a spiritist and I was like you know I'd never heard of that before so I was like tell me about that right and she looked at my bookshelf where I had some Buddhist books and some icons of the Buddha. And she was like, oh, are you a Buddhist? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, you probably already know whatever you need to know about spiritism, but I'll bring you some books anyway. And she brought me these books and I started reading them. And the next time I saw her, I was like, you know, this is this is really incredible. This is beautiful stuff. Um, so there's a, there's a belief that there's a continuity between all life and we have a spirit, really, that lives on and influences our loved ones, and it, or at least that it can. We also have access to the spiritual realm while we're in physical form and that they're really what makes spirits happy are these universal truths of unconditional love and forgiveness and uh, treating each other well, you know, mm -hmm. as the Buddha said, so, so succinctly, you know, try and do good. If you can't do good, just try not to do harm. That's basically it. That keeps the world pretty happy. Mm -hmm. And so as she got iller and sicker and started to decline and she got transferred to hospice care at home, she's one of the few people I visited at home. And when I saw her there, again, she had no fear. She was in pain. She said, the medicine's good, but I don't want to take too much because I like having my awareness around. And all my beliefs seem to be pretty accurate. The I'm never alone. And I asked her, what do you mean? There's family around? And she was like, the angels are here with me. And... My ancestors are here with me and they're not going to let me suffer. And so I asked her to send me a postcard afterwards just to let me know what was up. And she knew what I was talking about. And she was like, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. I don't, I don't know what it looks like over there, but yeah, sure. Okay. And so on the day that she died, my wife actually saw her in our living room. And she'd never met her before. But when I got home from work, my wife asked me if I knew a lady who looked like such and such and so and so. And not using any names, but just describing the physical characteristics of exactly the patient, exactly mm -hmm. who she was. What, what do you mean your wife saw her? So she came out from our bedroom, which is also our study. And in the dining room, she saw somebody sitting there. Wasn't she scared? I mean, there's someone sitting in their house? In your house? She was kind of like, she was confused, really. Uh-huh. And when she looked up, the figure was gone. Uh -huh. And we've had a few other minor weird things happen like that off and on over the years. And so she figured it was one of those things. She had that sense, you know, you, when you're in the presence of a spirit, uh -huh. oftentimes you, you kind of know you are and you can't really explain it. You just sort of know, like your spirit knows when it's around another spirit. It knows. It, it's hard to explain this right. without sounding too crazy. Yeah, yeah, sure. So she asked me, do you know a lady with, you know, this kind of hair and this kind of build who likes to wear these kinds of clothes. And, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's her. She died today. What time did you see her? And you know, it matched up. Mm -hmm. So I figured that was the postcard. Hmm. So that informs your sort of process by me sense that th there is something that's, that there is something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's and more that than material existence. Okay, and so when you see people and they have a, a cancer diagnosis that's terminal, then that's an important part of how you might work with them, whether or not they acknowledge it or not, whether or not they, they well, believe it, that or not. That's my question, I guess. So I guess the split is that, you know, I think that there's several different layers going on here. One is on a physical level, the body's failing, it's shutting down. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, there's a few things that, that our bodies know how to do very well. Our bodies know how to be born. They know how to reproduce. They know how to eat and produce waste. And they, the body knows how to die also very well. Mm-hmm. The mind doesn't really do that very well. So a lot of the anguish that you're witnessing is really a split between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. And there's a spiritual aspect to it also. And that there's a steady progression of things that start to happen between the body, the mind, and the spirit. And so my goal becomes, you know, the body process, I can't really control that. Nobody can really control that. Once the train leaves the station, it doesn't come back, so to speak. Once the dying process begins, you can't undie somebody. Right. Not for long, at least. So my goal is really to bring about some sort of mental or spiritual peace. And when there is no mental peace, you know, Depending on the person's beliefs, I, I try very hard not to impose my own beliefs directly on somebody. But what I try to do is figure out, do they have a spiritual belief? And if they don't, if they're an atheist, I'm going to approach it strictly from the level of how do we get you to psychological peace, to mental peace, to mm-hmm. some sort of intellectual or emotional, intellectual and emotional equilibrium throughout this process that doesn't involve spirit or God. I mean, I kind of feel like that's part of human dignity in the dying process, especially, and also during illness, that it's part of human dignity to have a sense of intellectual, emotional, mental, spiritual peace Mm -hmm. as much as is possible, even though it might not be meditating on a mountaintop kind of peace, but relative to where you've been, any improvement is welcome, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. What percent of people get to that point, you know, get to that that sense of peace? You know, it's really hard to say because what I see a lot is people who are dying of cancer. And with that, there's usually prolonged periods of sedation and lethargy. Mm -hmm. So people are really, they're really sleepy and tired for days, sometimes weeks before they actually die. So So why the sedation? You have different physical processes going on. Liver failure, for instance, Uh, fatigue and lethargy is part of of liver failure. Okay. Same thing with renal failure. If they've foregone dialysis, they're really going to just drift off into sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other metabolic issues that can happen that can cause a lapse of consciousness. There's also people who have severe pain requiring opiates and pain medicines. Um, mm-hmm. you know, their comfort level is basically that they cannot be awake. If they're awake, they're going to be suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very tricky conversation to have with family members sometimes is, uh, you know, basically my family member can't interact anymore. What good is there being here? We want to stop all the pain medicines. And you have to try to explain to them, well, if we do that, your family member is going to be in excruciating and debilitating pain. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be interacting with you any more than they are now, except now they're not feeling the pain. Mm-hmm. So there's many different reasons for sedation and lethargy at the end of life, but those are really the main ones. Okay. Right. You know, I think there's something to be said that a lot of people who view the dying process as a spiritual, not medical process, see it as also that there's a period of orientation almost that's taking place where, you know, whatever the next place we're going to go to is that they're they're being sort of like welcomed or oriented to what's going on there. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who perked up after that period of fatigue and they, you know, they'll say something like, oh my God, uh, I totally forgot that I was here also. And like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, the place I was at was really beautiful. I had my body back. Like, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And although it might sound like wish fulfillment, it's kind of eerie to hear that from a lot of people who don't know each other. Mm-hmm. 
And similarly, you'll you'll often hear from people that they can see other people, you know, family members in the room with them who've who've been deceased for a while. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a physical shutting down taking place, but on another level, maybe there's something else going on. I, I don't really know. What are the information you get from family members that helps you in your work with patients and their families? We've talked a lot about the patients. What about their families? One thing that it's a constant struggle is encouraging them to take care of themselves also. In their dedication to a loved one who's ill, mm-hmm. are they, for instance, not following up with their own doctors about health issues they have? Are they saying, you know, that weird lump I'm feeling, that can wait. What's going on now is way more important. That's just a little tiny, it's probably a pimple. No, maybe you want to look into that, make sure, because you know, your own health is just as fragile as anyone else's. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly trying to encourage self-care. I'm also trying to educate them about the different drugs that the loved ones are, are going to be given, just kind of lay a land, orienting them. Uncertainty affects family members just as badly as it affects patients. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to alleviate and eliminate a lot of the uncertainty also for them. And what are you uh, looking at in terms of like what they're doing or what they're saying? Like what's important for you about what they say, what they do that impacts your decisions oh. about how you might work with the patients or the families? The most important thing is, are they being realistic? Mm-hmm. Are they obsessing about the wrong things or do they have a good grasp of the whole situation? They'll dwell on one thing. Why is the potassium at the level it is? Why aren't you giving them more potassium? Right. Well, the potassium's fine. It's not fine, but we have numbers indicating that his his or her liver is shutting down. Mm. And the potassium's really not that important right now. Mm. The blood pressure, you're not controlling the blood pressure anymore. Why mm-hmm. not? Well, if you look at these other numbers, it's not really a, a problem right now. So what, what does that tell you then about what you need to do with the family? Educate them. Okay. Um, usually what I'm looking at in the dying process with the patients of mine who are dying is that there's a convergence of factors that are going on, that there's not just one thing that's causing death, but many different things lining up and Mm-hmm. Kind of like wolves circling around their prey. So if they're focusing on any one thing, we still have to contend with a whole host of other variables that might be getting ignored. So you kind of want to pull somebody out and say, you know what, we can't really fix the glucose to the extent that you would like fixed. There's all this other stuff happening right now too. And that's way more important and way more worrisome. But I'm also, you know, there's a strong feeling I have is that family members need to address unfinished business they may have. So oftentimes what I'll do is I'll talk to them about a list that a a physician named Ira Bayak, and I I think he based this on a Hawaiian kahuna tradition, Mm -hmm. where in traditional Hawaiian society, when somebody was ill, the whole village would come and talk to them and they would go over these kind of key themes in relationships. Mm -hmm. And so Ira Bayak has a a beautiful book called The Four Things That Matter the Most. And an earlier iteration of that was called The Five Things, which is, um, I'm sorry, I forgive you, I love you, thank you, and goodbye. And so I try to encourage family members to have those kinds of, have a conversation that encompasses all of those themes, because that to me is really a comprehensive way to get a sense of, of fullness and completion around a relationship. And how can you tell if they will do that or they're reluctant or what you need to do to kind of help them along? A lot of times they'll ask me, what do I say? What should I say? I have so much to say. I don't know how much longer I have to say it in. And Mm -hmm. I'll hand them the bullet points, basically. I'll say, you know, these are the themes you need to cover. Use your own words to convey this. 
sometimes, you know, if they're really not being accurate in terms of what their expectations are, I might pull them aside and say, listen, I would like to see it happen one way, but I'm afraid it's happening this other way. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, this is what we can expect. And again, I'm confronting that uncertainty, mm -hmm. making it a known thing. And once I'm making it a known thing, it, their mind kind of automatically will say, this is how we can structure the future. Right. Hopefully it's not this way, but it's probably going to be that way. Gotcha. Um, any other important, like in your day-to-day -day work at the hospital um, with your patients, any other important sort of uh, data points that you look at or anything else that we haven't covered? Well, really a lot of where the data comes in is in people making decisions about heroic measures to prolong life. Mm -hmm. And this really starts to get into ethics. The data is pretty clear in terms of who benefits from very aggressive interventions to prolong life and who can go through those aggressive interventions with minimal to no benefit and even worse with detriment to their family members and caregivers. That to me is the most important data to have mentally encoded, chiseled into the tissues of my brain because you know we're all gonna suffer at some point. I don't want my family to suffer needlessly because of decisions that they didn't know how to make. <laughs> at the time of my suffering. Some of the, the most powerful data is really about when heroic measures are appropriate at the end of life and when they're not. Right. And knowing full well the data on when heroic measures are used in a futile way, in a medically futile way, the impact that that has on family members and caregivers. So you've written uh, three books and your most recent book, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the most recent book is Mindfulness for Prolonged Grief. It's a workbook. And it's for people who, uh, this is really a silly category called prolonged grief. It used to be known as complicated grief. I really don't enjoy using these phrases very well because I think they're stupid, frankly. I had a patient recently who said, you know, it shouldn't be called prolonged grief. It should just be called profound grief. And I thought she was more accurate than a group of psychologists who were you know, in a room paid to come up with these terms. But basically, technically, prolonged grief is grief beyond six months, which as a clinician is pretty normal. It's kind of weird to me that, you know, why is it called prolonged grief? But that's, yeah, it's not my call to make. So the third book is a workbook for people who have prolonged grief to help put some of the symptoms in peculiar, particular. Yeah, what are the symptoms? Like, what are the things well, that people the, struggle one with? One of the main with? things is that in addition to the emotional burden of the grief, there's a a profound sense of yearning, which to most people might just seem like there's not what you have with grief. But again, the categories aren't up to me that I'm not the one who yeah. stuff up. Right. So it's really a profound sense of yearning and a prolonged disturbance of identity. Like for instance, the couple they met when they were in high school, they married at 18, they were married 67 years, and now one of them has passed away. Okay, so that's what disturbance and, of identity means. Like Right. And the surviving spouse really has never been alone as an adult. What do they do now? What is the world like without a partner? It's right. very, very confusing. Sure, 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 sure. Or, you know, of our generation of losing a parent and being an adult orphan. It's a very strange feeling that's there. Most severe and intense is losing a child. And I've been doing a lot of that lately, which is working with people who's, uh, who've lost children. And it really makes this category of prolonged grief seem even sillier to work with these kinds of people who've lost a child. That, you know, that's not something that goes away. That's not a grief that just has a finish line, you know, six months out. That's something that 
It's right. always going to be there. So the workbook is really for helping people not get rid of their grief as much as to live better with it, which is, I think, a much more realistic approach. That's really my take. So that's a mindfulness part of it? Yes, yes. That's that's using So not fighting it, but being just with it. You can't fight it. You know, it has a life of its own. The grief has its own, it's almost its own being. Right. And if you try to lock it out of your house, it's just going to find new ways to break in. So the mindfulness approach is really just to say, hey, grief, you're here. I don't really like you a whole lot, Mm -hmm. but you're not going away. Come on in, sit on the sofa. I'm going to sit next to you. I'm not going to fight you. I wish you weren't here, but since you're here, I still have a life to live. And I need to figure out how to live my life with you in it, you know, you being grief. So the workbook is really about helping people to do that, you know, using some of the, a lot of the new data that's come out on optimizing human existence on what do the healthiest people do? How often do they exercise? What kinds of foods do they eat? What kinds of activities do they engage in? And using that to sort of say, you know, you have to train for grief. You don't ask for grief, but if it's happening, you need to train your body and your mind and your spirit to endure it. And so this is what that looks mm-hmm. like. Is it that uh, some of those practices that people uh, engage in, regardless of like whether or not they have grief? You know, if you do certain things, eat a certain way, exercise, and how you operate in terms of your relationships, your spiritual world, whatever, it's going to help you. But also, if you have grief, it's going to help you too. Is that it, or is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And this is basically the same advice I give to my patients who are going through cancer: is that you can't manage the event. The best you can do is manage the stress that it brings. This is happening. You can't change the fact that it's happening or that it's happened. The best you can do is manage the stress that comes with it. Right. So this is how we're going to try to do that. Gotcha. Okay. So the workbook helps. Is it patients, uh, people can do it on their own or they can do it with their therapists or like what? Yeah, both, really. Okay. Uh, A lot of therapists have bought it to distribute to their patients. A lot of people have bought it just to do it on their own. So if there's something you could tell yourself, like going back, you know, when you started off as a therapist or at least a therapist working with folks with a terminal illness or just very serious illnesses, right? What would that be? What I would tell myself is that, hey, listen, stop fighting it. This is what you're put on this planet to do. Just be okay with that. Mm -hmm. For many years, I would just kind of scratch my head saying, the hell am I doing? This is a really crazy job. I think I wasted probably too much energy trying to figure out why I was doing that. And I think what I would like to tell myself earlier on is, hey, you know what? (laughs) Just like I tell my patients, you can't manage that you're doing this. Manage the stress that it brings Mm -hmm. much better than you are. You know, I really kind of gotten into my groove in the last five, six years in a way that's been very exponentially more refined than what came before. And what I mean by my groove is that I really like the rhythm I've had lately in the last several years of my own self-care routines and my own wellness routines and and the kind of clinical work I've been doing, I feel like has benefited from that also. Right. So that's all, it's all connected. Yeah, I, yeah you... whatever's in the workbook, in the last book, mm-hmm. is based on data. It's based on data on optimal um, emotional states, optimal physical health, optimal nutritional states. And that's stuff that I tried at some point, and it's just kind of become lifestyle choice for me. It just feels better to live that way. So I'm not really forcing myself to get up early and meditate and exercise. I just know that that's really a really pleasant way to live. It just feels damn good to live that way. 
So um, I, I do that eagerly. Gotcha. What are resources, books, websites, whatever that are good that help you in doing your work, things that you could recommend to others? Well, my books are available on Amazon, so you can always go there. Um, if you have an independent bookstore close by, mm-hmm. you can ask them to order it also. I really like reading stuff by Ram Dass mm-hmm. and uh, by Joan Halifax also. Mm-hmm. Lately, I've been really reading a lot of stuff by Sharon Salzberg. Reading her stuff really gives me a sense of wonderful fullness uh, around my heart. Um, so she's uh, really written a lot about loving kindness techniques and meditation, mm-hmm. which isn't as soft and gushy as you might think. It's actually, uh, she's a really fierce warrior. I mean, if you think about it, she's really well-versed in mapping out these states of unconditional love. And in order to do that, you really have to be experienced in knowing where the sea monsters are. You know, if you're going to be mapping this uncharted ocean of love, mm-hmm. you need to know where the rocks are. And so she has this unique gift of being able to sort of say, hey, you know what? I found these really nasty coastlines in my own personality. And when she does that, it's done with loving intent so that you kind of go, hey, I see that in my own. And wow, I can love past that. That's mm-hmm. that's amazing. Right. And so I've been reading a lot of Sharon Salzberg. Um, a Heart as Big as the World is a really good book of hers. She's also got a new series out called Real Happiness or Real Happiness at Work right. and Real Happiness. They're wonderful books. Ramdas wrote Be Here Now. He also wrote many others. But honestly, I've been what I've been doing is listening to his uh, Here and Now podcasts, which are just uh, recordings of his from lectures he gave from the 60s onwards. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for those suggestions. How can people get in touch with you or find out information about you? Do you have a website or do you have a... Yeah, I have, uh, a, I have a website I barely pay attention to, uh, samitkumar.com, I think it is. Um, I have a Twitter handle, which is much more accessible, at Samit Kumar. That's S-A-M, as in Michael, E-E-T-K-U-M-A-R, uh, Samit Kumar, all one word, at Samit Kumar. That's on Twitter. Um, I have a Facebook page also, Samit Kumar, PhD. My email is samitkumar at yahoo.com. I got that before the days of Gmail, so that's the way it is. Yeah, I'm very accessible. Happy to talk to people. Love people. Great. All right, Samit, thank you very much for talking with me, and we'll have a a good time this weekend. I hope so. (laughs) Looks like it so far. Yeah. All All right. right. Take care.